You're listening to On the Ear, an audiology podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Dr. Dakota Sharp, AUDCCCA, audiologist, clinical professor, and lifelong learner. While I primarily work with pediatric cochlear implants and hearing aids, I am absolutely intrigued by the many areas of audiology and communication in general. This podcast aims to explore the science of hearing, balance, and communication with a variety of experts in hopes of equipping you to better serve your patients, colleagues, and students. So let's go. We are live and on the ear, brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. As hearing healthcare professionals, we know and value the importance of research. It shapes our clinical practice, our ethics, and our understanding of how things work. But oftentimes, our first hands-on exposure to research is when we begin our graduate-level education. Today's guest is trying to expose communication sciences and disorder students to research much earlier in hopes of creating capable clinical scientists. Dr. Aaron Piker, AUD-PhD, is an associate professor and director of the Vestibular Sciences Lab in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders at James Madison University. JMU, Duke Dogs, let's go. She earned her AUD and PhD in hearing science from Vanderbilt University. Her research interests are in the areas of vestibular physiology and clinical diagnostics. Dr. Piker teaches undergraduate and graduate courses in the areas of vestibular sciences, auditory and vestibular anatomy and physiology, and auditory and vestibular pathologies. She has mentored PhD students, AUD students, undergraduates, and medical residents. Although she enjoys teaching in the classroom, her favorite place to teach and work one-on-one with students is in the lab. I had the privilege of Dr. Dr. Piker as my vestibular and pathophysiology professor when I think it was her first year at JMU, and she is a fantastic teacher, leader, and role model for AUDs, PhDs, SLPs, and undergrad CSD students everywhere. So thank you so much for joining me today, Erin. Yes, thank you. So can you tell me, I'm, I'm curious because I feel like the AUD PhD is almost like a grail that very few people go for. So it's a, it's a pretty rare, you know, uh, a title for someone. How did you get to that point? Ooh, well, um, I started with my AUD. Well, I should say I going back before that, after undergrad, I didn't want to do grad school anymore. I didn't want to do anything. So I took a year off and that gap year was really, really important for me. Um, I didn't do much during that year, but work and save some money. And then when I decided to pursue audiology, I went the clinical route. I definitely wanted to work with people. I wanted to help people. Midway through my AUD, um, I began working in a lab. I was exposed to research. and I kind of got hooked pretty early on. And, um, you know, before I knew it, I was applying for a PhD. Then I was enrolling in a PhD. And eight years later, I had, I had my AUD and my PhD. Um, there went my 20s. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, the, my, my mentor was um, Dr. Gary Jacobson. And he said to me at the time, um, t- the time is going to go anyway. Time is going to go by anyway. The years are going to go by anyway. So, you know, work towards your goal, whatever that is. And I didn't have a, a clear career goal. I didn't know what I wanted. I knew I was going to be an audiologist, but I didn't know where I wanted to work. I just knew I wanted to work with the vestibular system. Sure. And um, during during my AUD, one of the real pushes to to go for the PhD for me was topic specific. I wanted to learn more about the vestibular system. I wanted to study it far more in depth than I got to do as an AUD student. That really combined with um, you know um, some mentorship that not only sparked that research interest, but 
he also told me over and over and over again that I could do it. And and that was really helpful. I think yeah, I that's need, great. I needed to hear that. Yeah. I think today as we talk about sort of like the experience of undergraduates in research, I think that that layer of mentorship is so critical a lot of the time in, you know, it when you feel like you don't really have a clear direction, just someone who is experienced, who can provide that insight. I mean, I feel like him saying, you know, if you have that time, you're going to be, you might as well be working towards something. That's something that you wouldn't hear, you know, in a more general classroom setting. That really comes from a mentor who, you know, you have a relationship with who's going to give you that guidance. Yeah. And, and, and with undergrads, another, well, I guess we'll get to this, but one of, one of the things I really want to do is demystify research. Um, so many don't, they think, oh, I have to design a project. I have to be this. And I'm, I don't expect that from them. That is higher level. Um, they just need to be present and willing to work. And then, you know, I'll teach them what they need to know. Yeah, that's great. That's such a good point. Yeah, I think I think that's something we'll have to get into is how like the undergraduate expectation of what research actually is. Before we get into that, I'm okay, so I'm a little bit curious. So not only the AUD PhD, which I feel like is super rare, but also the specialization in something like vestibular, was that what what was it about vestibular, you know, I don't know if it's pathology or anatomy, what really drew you in at first? Um the I think the the connection to neuroscience um, a lot of my undergrad work was um, in neuro, and I, I saw the connection between balance and obviously the brain. Um, and I was very interested in how we test the vestibular system. It's very different than you know a hearing test in a booth. And I don't know, just I got hooked immediately. It's it's complicated, and I love things that are complicated. I love digging deep into something that I'm never going to fully understand, and I, I I can just keep on going. Got it. Yeah, that's really cool. And I, I do feel like vestibular is something you kind of touched on where in in the process of the AUD, it depends on really where you get your clinical experience. I feel like, you know, you maybe have a course or two that talk about vestibular science in your AUD program, but unless like your program has a strong vestibular clinical presence or that kind of thing, it's probably not going to be, you know, emphasized in your AUD program. It's probably something you'll see more clinically, or if you went on for your PhD, you might focus on in that way. Yeah, it, it may be something some students aren't exposed to until their fourth year, mm-hmm. where they may get a more varied experience. And you know, a lot of you know AD programs will expose you to to some. And you know, and our our JMU clinic doesn't do vestibular testing, but this we have the lab. We have the vestibular lab where students can can get some experience. And you know, the other unique thing about JMU is undergrads get vestibular experience. You know, as early as they want. I had a freshman email me this past year wanting to get into the lab. That's amazing. That's so cool. Okay. So that kind of brings us up to basically today, the AUD, the PhD, some time at Vanderbilt. I think you were maybe in North Carolina at one point. Yes. Uh, when I graduated from um, Vanderbilt, my first faculty position was at Duke University. That's right. Um, yeah. I, I was there for four years. Um, it, my, my position there was both um, clinical. I saw vestibular patients and research, vestibular research. So I was 100% vestibular. And I thought that's that was the career I wanted, right? I, I got two doctorates. It took me eight years and Dagnab, but I was going to use both of them. <laughs> and um, the, the one thing that I was missing was really students. There's no AUD program there. And the, the last I don't know, year and a half, maybe two years I was there, the AUD students from UNC Chapel Hill started to come by and do um, vestibular rotations for a semester at a time. 
And I, I realized it was my favorite part of the week when the UNC students were there with me. Sure. I, I enjoyed clinical teaching. And when I was ready to leave Duke, I knew my next job needed to be in a CSD department and it needed to be with more students. Got it. So, okay. So that brings you to JMU. So can you tell me a little bit about like your job at JMU? Um, like kind of what the makeup of it is, what that looks like? Uh, sure. You, you described my job pretty well in the beginning. I mean, on, <laughs> on paper, I'm um, associate professor in the CSD department. Um, I, I teach, I do research and all academic positions involve some service. So, you know, there's committee work and things. Um, all of my research interests pertain to the vestibular system, and um, I study physiology and diagnostics, you know, how we identify vestibular impairments. I use mostly electrophysiologic techniques, but I'm also really interested in the effects of vestibular loss on the person, so the overall functional implications. Um, and, you know, I would say that's sort of my elevator speech about my job. Um, <laughs> Students are listening. Everyone says, have your elevator speech for someone important catches you in an elevator and they say, oh, what are you working on? You've got 30 seconds to sound really cool and that you know what you're doing. That's my elevator speech. But um, it, in reality, my job is a whole bunch of stuff about students. I, um, you know, I teach students and I, I mentor students in the, in the classroom and I advise students and I advise undergrads and then I teach and advise in the lab. And really every day is centered around what students am I working with that day. There's often a line outside my office door with just students just coming in with all various levels. No, it's awesome. I, I love <laughs> it. I don't know how it's going to work this coming year. I guess we'll, we'll all be masked, but sure. Um, yeah, no, that that's so my, my, my job uh, really incorporates students in every aspect of it. That's great. It sounds like you've you've probably described a lot of people's like nightmare, but to you, it sounds like you're exactly where you need to be. <laughs> that line of students. I know some people I work with, they'd say, if I saw that line, I'd run in the other direction. I mean, there are times when I need to shut the door. That's, <laughs> that's for sure. But uh, no, I, I actually usually feel, um, um, what's the word? Not like refreshed. I feel energized after, yeah. after I meet with students. If I'm just in there writing a manuscript or working in my door shut, I need to open it and like, let some you know, young fresh air come in. It's good. <laughs> Got it. So what is like the current structure of your lab then? So I'm assuming you have, it sounds like you have undergrads. It sounds like you have AUD students. Do you have um, like master's level SLP student? Like what? Because there's a lot of different kinds of students at JMU. So I'm curious, maybe you even have a PhD student. I'm not even sure. I do. I have a current PhD student in his third year. I have an incoming PhD student. Um, one of the AUD first years is going to do a dual AUD PhD. And then there's another AUD student who may do a dual AUD PhD. Oh, my goodness. Um, obviously, we have AUDs. You were there. You were one of the students. And so the, the, the PhDs in the lab are obviously very vestibular focused. Otherwise, I don't know what they'd want to work with me for because that, <laughs> that's all we're doing. Um, the AUDs in the lab or either, you know, assigned as a, a GA, you know, a, a graduate assistantship, maybe doing something, maybe they're unpaying them from a grant, um, or they're interested in doing a vestibular project for their dissertation. And then um, undergrads, and most, and we have a lot of undergrads, and it, it, you know, changes semester to semester, but I would say at my biggest lab meeting, there may be a dozen undergrads who, who will come in. Um, most of them are um, interested in speech. Like most undergrad programs, the majority are going to go, you know, SLP. 
Some are in the lab because they're doing an honors thesis and they wanted to do it with me because I, I teach in the undergrad program. So they already knew me. Some are in there because they just want a research experience and there's a lot of projects going on and someone said, oh, try this one out. So they jumped in. And then some of them are in there because they think they want to do speech, but they're kind of leaning towards audiology. You know, they had Dr. Routes class that first semester junior year and he gets them hooked on audiology. And so they start to think, I think I want to switch over to audiology, but they don't have much exposure outside of a hearing test. Maybe. Sure hearing aid, maybe a private practice in their hometown. And so they're looking to see what else do audiologists do. And really, the vestibular lab is the best place to see that because we're going to do crazy stuff (laughs) within the scope of practice for an audiologist, but stuff that they probably won't see in a small clinic. That's really cool. So yeah, that's a really diverse lab structure. And I definitely see how each person can kind of play a role in that too. It's really cool. Do you feel like you're is it ever an overwhelming number? I feel like, I mean, your total there, you're getting close to 20 lab members. I mean, that's that's pretty big. Yeah, no, sometimes it, it, it is a bit big, um, but I have, I have a lot of different projects that are ongoing. And over the last four years, it's actually worked out really, really nicely to delegate some of that. I've got an awesome PhD student. And so he'll like run his project and he might have an AUD or undergrads under him. And then all the AUD students who have a project they may have three or four undergrads kind of working as their assistant. So I end up putting them almost in little pods where they all will work with me, but they kind of have their, their, you know, direct person is going to be a grad student that the undergrad will get to work with more. And we, you know, utilize different apps that students have told me about. We have GroupMe and all these different things we use where we, we group together. We have separate conversations and then we come together for lab meetings, and that's when everyone's together. So if, if a project's ongoing in the lab, there's only a small group of students who would be working on it. Um, we use Google calendars, and we color code it to know who's where and who needs to be at different places. So it, it's a, it ends up sounding like a lot, but somehow it works out pretty well. I don't know. Everything seems to flow quite nicely. Yeah, it sounds like you've got a great hierarchy where it, you know, it like organizationally, it makes a lot of sense, kind of the the trickle down of like research topics and research projects and how they all group together like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that honestly kind of happened on accident. No one taught me how to do that. I'm, I, I kind of wish I had been taught how to do that. And it just sort of organically happened as more and more people came in the lab and I literally couldn't work with everyone all the time. And so being able to delegate some of this to that, to the the upper level grad students, you know, a first year AUD student, I'm not expecting, you know, too, too much, but by the time you're in your second or third year, you know, you're kind of a little group leader and you're mentoring some undergrads yourself. Yeah, that's great. That's, I I can see how that, like, it's, so we're going to really get into this, like all of the ways that this kind of experience impacts students. Cause it's not just, you know, they learn how, as broad as they learn how research is done, but it really impacts them, whether it's from the mentorship aspect or leadership or, you know, organizational skills. Um, speaking to like my personal experience, so I was involved in undergraduate research also through the honors program, doing an honors thesis. And I had a really interesting experience because at the time I wasn't sure if I wanted to do speech or audiology early on. And so I just tacked on with um, like one of my favorite professors at the time, who's no longer with JMU, but she was a, she was an SLP, um, who was focusing on stuttering. And so just being in her lab environment, I think I was, you know, just collecting data and, you know, just data input, like whatever the most lowly undergrad, like 
I didn't know how to do anything. And I was like, just here to learn kind of thing. And then about halfway through, she actually went to a new school and took a lot of the data with her. And I was like, oh no, what am I going to do for my project now? So I had to kind of shift and learn. But I would say one of the things I took from it was just like, because she also had um, a PhD student and it was like seeing what ha- what could be beyond, like going beyond what my normal coursework looks like, being in a lab setting, going for you know a degree that's beyond the undergraduate degree. What can that look like? And I mean, I didn't go on to be too much research, you know, heavy in my own career, but it was, I think it was a really big leg up for me when it came to my research and my AUD program, just because I had been in a lab, I kind of understood because that hierarchy, like you said, it just kind of naturally like forms. And once you understand that and you understand how you can contribute and how the process works, it's really, really helpful. So um, before our conversation, I was looking at some of like because I, I love this, by the way, it's so meta. It's research on research. Like, <laughs> what does research as a thing teach us? And can we research that? I'm like, the meta of this is just so hilarious to me. Um, but there is this big study done called the SURE study, the Survey of Undergraduate Research Experiences. Um, and so they were asking these three questions. And I'm curious in your experience, especially with undergrads in your lab, what you've seen in terms of these questions. So the first one is, is the educational experience of undergraduates being enhanced by a research experience? Overall, their study found yes. The second question is, are undergraduate research programs attracting and supporting talented students interested in a career involving scientific research? And again, the answer was in the affirmative. And then finally, are undergraduate research programs retaining minority students in the pathway to a scientific career? And again, the answer was in the affirmative. So basically, they set out to answer these questions and they found that undergraduate research was accomplishing all of that. So I'm curious, like, in your experience having undergrads, do you feel like the educational experience is being enhanced? Um, I'm going to assume you're going to say yes, but I'm curious how you've seen it impact them in different ways, more like, you know, in the day to day. Yeah, well, Kate, I am going to say yes. Good Lord, I certainly hope so. Um, I think in in, in ways it enhances it. And for one thing, in in my lab, it's a vestibular lab. So most undergrads aren't exposed to a lot of vestibular as an undergrad. They know that that's part of the inner ear. It probably comes up in the early anatomy class. And that's about all they know. And so just it's a novel topic for an undergrad to study. I mean, even SLPs, I love that, by the way, that you were in a stuttering lab and then I have all these SLPs in my vestibular lab. Um, but not only do they learn research methodologies, but they're, they're working on a team and they're learning how to abide by a protocol. And they learn how deep and complicated our research literature is. Um, like if you want to learn a new topic, uh, perusing a few abstracts online isn't going to cut it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've only been there four years. And so my very first undergrad just finished her um, her master's in, in speech. I had an undergrad with me at, at Duke University. He's doing a PhD in neuroscience. So I guess I do have um, 50-50, one one clinical, one one research. Um, the other undergrads I've worked with are all in grad school. They've all gone on to grad school. They're currently all in, in um, SOP or AUD um, programs. But I, I hope that even as, as clinicians, that they go on to successful evidence-based clinical careers. Um, I think that's, that's really important also that um, they not necessarily have to go in and get you know, a PhD and extensive training to contribute to that science base of our, our profession, but to understand the evidence-based uh, assessment and 
treatment and to be a better consumer of research. Um, and so I think exposing exposing students to that early and often um, is, you know, it's a win-win. I don't see how that couldn't enhance their education. Absolutely. Um, and the second one was about going on for research careers. I, I'm not, I, I hope that, you know, we, we hook a few that they um, either find a, a passion for, for, for learning and um, want to go on and do more, or um, maybe they just, you know, didn't know that they could. Maybe they were never told, oh, you're, you know, PhD material. It might have never occurred to them. They might have felt lucky to even go to undergrad. And then now they're in this lab and I'm telling them you should go further. And they may have never heard that before. Um, so I think, and then that goes for the third part. If we have minority students, they also may not, never have seen themselves, may not have seen examples of someone who who was from their background, who looked like them, who was, you know, in a lab coat, though I don't wear a lab coat at work, but you know, that, that stereotypical scientist. And they're like, I could, Absolutely. I could be a scientist. Um, and, you know, with, with undergrad research, uh, yeah, you're all little little budding scientists. And, um, you know, maybe a few will, will want to go on. They just need to be told that, you know, they could. That's a great point. And I think that comes back to mentorship too. Just having a person as an example, as a role model for, for something they never imagine for themselves, but when they see it's attainable and it's realistic, um, I think that's great. I, I remember early on in my AUD career, or even maybe before I applied, they talked about an AUD slash PhD as a thing. But at the time, I'd never, there was no one who I know, who I knew who had done that, or like, I didn't know what that looks like. Like, that without an example, it's hard to imagine it. But now I would imagine that with you being there with that history, more students can see that as, okay, so this is what, like, once I finished, this is what it could look like. That's amazing. Or that's something I want to do. And it becomes much more of a, you know, a much more common thing for people to be interested in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a good point. And I'm not entirely sure what the dual AUD PhD will look like. You know, we've got a student doing it now and we're, we're, working on it as we go, you know, if, can we shave a few years off if we kind of jump on that early, but sure, it is important to see what someone's doing. And, and, you know, this is a, a female dominant profession. Um, my PhD student is, is a male and the one coming in is a male, but otherwise every single undergrad in my lab is female. And um, i trying to think if I have any male AUD students in there, they're, they're all female. And they, I've had so many students say to me, well, once I'm done, you know, I think I want kids and I don't know about this. And then they'll see me. I bring my daughter into the lab all the time. She has her own cat. She's four now and she's been coming into my lab since she was seven months old. She's got her own cabinet with her own toys. And I think that's <laughs> another thing that's important for young women to see if they think they're interested in a science career is you can totally have, have a family and there's actually a lot of flexibility in a research career. And so I think that also helps. Actually, That's a great think, point. I, I know it helps. They've, they've told me, oh, I like to see that. I didn't know you could bring your kid to work. <laughs> I, I do anyway, and no one's told me not. <laughs> <laughs> it's working so far. That's a really great point. Um, that shore study, they mentioned, they they did these, um, they asked the students themselves, like specific, you know, learning gains that they had related to the the, their experience as an undergraduate researcher. And so students rated most highly, like they gained the most learning understanding the research process, scientific problems, and lab techniques. Those were like rated the highest. I'm sure you've seen that with your undergrads going from like 
They have no idea what the scientific method is. Maybe they do. Hopefully, they learned that in like, you know, middle school or high school science, but some of them I'm sure don't. What kind of growth have you seen just in terms of like the more technical side of things? Oh, yeah. The, the technical is where you see, I think, the quick growth um, because it's also very tangible. Um, you know, if we're doing evoke potentials in the beginning, they're just kind of watching. And then by the end, they're doing the whole thing. They're, they're running the equipment. You know, they don't have a very deep understanding of what they're doing yet, but they could, they could run the test. They could run the rotary chair. They can run a caloric. They can do a lot of the, the technical assessments. And when undergrads first, you know, email me, they're interested in the lab and I have a conversation with them and we go back and forth. And I always say, what, what are you looking for out of a, a research experience? All of them will say, oh, I want to like, test people. I want to get my hands on some equipment. I want to run some yeah. Like not a single one says, oh, I'd like to write a grant and do a literature review <laughs> and all those other things that go into it. I, I do those. Um, no, one, no one wants to do all the writing, which by the way, anyone interested in a research career, it's mostly writing. But at the undergrad level, we haven't gotten that point yet. It, it is mostly that, that technical part is definitely where you see the biggest growth. And then those doing honors projects or those who stay in my lab for two or three years. You know, I have one, she'll be a first year AUD, but she's been working with me since she was a sophomore. You know, they can start to do some writing. They can start to do some of the other behind the scenes research work because at that point they've been there for a while. Yeah, that's a great point. And I, I like how it, it makes sense to me that those those, you know, more hands-on skills would come so quickly. It's great that your lab has that opportunity for them. I, I'm not sure if that's the case in most places, but I feel like, you know, I know I learn best by just kind of getting in there and trying it for the first time. So, it's great that they, you know, by the time they're out of there, they're able to do all these things easily. Yeah, I guess I I, I viewed, you know, my, my I say my lab, it's JMU's lab, you know, they, they gave me the space and they bought me the equipment. And so, it's not just for me and my own research agenda. It's also about training the next generation of researchers and clinicians. And, you know, they need to get their hands on the equipment. They need to, to get in there. And we, we have had someone break things um, that I was able to fix and it wasn't that big of a deal, but she felt terrible. And I was like, it happens. Yeah. You know, stuff, stuff will break down. We're going to, you know, use up some resources, but that's what they're there for. That's, that's actually a really great point. So another thing from the, the Shore study, students reported personal gains. And I think these are really interesting. So these are different from those more hands-on things. Tolerance for obstacles and working independently. So I feel like understanding, yeah, things are going to break. Things aren't always going to pan out the way that you expected, you know. So these obstacles and, and working independently, have you seen that as well? I'm sure that's a little bit more slow growing. Yeah, no, we definitely do a lot of troubleshooting. Um, and, you know, I, I've been so lucky to have awesome AUD students in there that will, will do a little troubleshooting before, you know, I get the frantic text like, hurry, come up here. Um, and one of the, the studies, if, you know, we have time to go through some of them, one of the ones we're doing involves like a Wii board and Google glasses and all these different little things we're doing. And, you know, that stuff breaks down all the time. And so they, they definitely come up with technical challenges or, you know, the participants here and ready to go, but my computer's not running. Um, and so they have to kind of work through those. Um, and speaking of participants, they learn how to consent people. They learn how to work with people. They learn, um, you know, they all have to take city training for, you know, for research. So they, you know, they have to understand the ethics of research and research integrity and the things we can and cannot do. And, you know, that, that's another thing that they learn. Yeah, that's great. I, I it also mentioned, um, like an intrinsic motivation to learn. They're more active in their courses that they take, you know, after they've they've started this research experience, that kind of thing. Um, 
So I, I think like you definitely can start to, is there any other places where you see that overlap or it kind of like, I don't know if it stretches more into their professionalism or, you know, what other places you see it? I could, yeah, I could see a little bit in, in professionalism. A couple of the undergrad SLPs I've had when interviewing for grad school were getting offered um, graduate assistantships in research labs. And then there's one particular student I'm thinking of, and she, you know, attributed to her time in the lab. And I think she was able to write about that experience and talk about it in an interview. And so she got a lab assistantship going on. So that that's, I suppose, somewhat intrinsic, but really that's more of a tangible benefit. Yeah. Um, for for courses, you know, the undergrads, I get them when they're juniors. And so I don't see them in their, their senior level coursework, which is usually by the time they've had more experience in the lab. But I see it in the AUD students. Um, you know, the one student now who wants to do the AUD PhD, she worked on what started off as a class project that's now becoming her dissertation for her AUD, but she saw what the next logical project would be, what the next step would be, where she should go for, what should she be reading about, what, where, where would this line of research she was starting to develop, where would it go? And that was really cool to see. That is definitely in the right train of thought to do research. Isn't this one project when it's done, I'm done with this topic. No, we dig deeper into the topic. We go further into this topic and we keep on going. And she did that on her own. And she had emailed me and said, oh, I think this can be the next thing. And this could be the next thing. And uh, she was right. That would be the next thing she would do. <laughs> yeah, that's such, a, that's such a good point about research itself is that it doesn't end. Like no, doesn't <laughs> there is no end of research. It just keeps growing. Once you learn a little bit more about something, you realize how little you know about that something and you have to keep asking more questions. Yeah, it's one of my favorite things, though. Yeah, that's good. It's why it's why you're a researcher, I guess. <laughs> it is my my to do list never ends. Um, okay, so actually, so either speaking to her project or other, like, what kind of things are your undergraduates working on right now in your lab? Okay, yeah, so I could talk about research projects all day, um, and like I said in the beginning, I don't know who's you know listening, but if anyone wants to talk about vestibular research projects, you can email me. We can talk all day, all the time. But I'll go over a few um, of the undergrad heavy projects. Um, And I have a few kind of what I would call outlier projects where I'm not really sure where I'm going to fit them in yet. And then I have like where my my main projects that are on my main line of research. And so then I'll touch on those as well. Um, But some like the outlier studies for for undergrads, like, for example, I'm doing a, a qualitative study right now using survey data. So it's qualitative. It's all it's all words and we have to analyze those words, right? There's no numbers here. And it's um, the data is from a, a patient group looking at uh, the patient's experience with vestibular testing. Things like, was it uncomfortable? Was it confusing? Did you understand your results? Was it valuable to you? And it's the first time I've done a qualitative study, but it's a great project for students, particularly now, because they can work on it from home. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a great project for, you know, even SLPs to work on. And, and when we were putting the qualitative project together, we had a team of a couple undergrads working on this. Um, it helps develop empathy for our patients. And that's something that translates across all clinical fields. You know, what we're doing these things to the patient, but what does a patient feel like? Um, so that's one of our little outlier undergrad projects. Um, another study that I'm doing with psychology involves psychology undergrads as well. Uh, CSD undergrads and some AUD grad students, but we're looking at 
uh, vestibular testing, but specifically how we instruct patients uh, prior to one of the more provocative tests, which is the caloric test. Oh, and, no. Yeah, we're seeing if, if we're actually inducing what's called a nocebo effect. And this is a, a project that every time I go through the projects with a new undergrad, they always want to jump on this one. And I've mm-hmm. had to say, no, we got to do something else. There's too many students on this project. <laughs> but it, it's just a really, really cool project. So the nocebo effect is like the counterpart to placebo, which everyone knows what a placebo effect is. Um, you know, if you think this pill you're taking is going to make you better, then it makes you better, right? Even if it's just sugar. Yeah. With, with nocebo is if you, if you think the pill is going to make you sick, then it really will make you sick right? Even if it's just sugar. Got it. So with caloric testing, um, if we set the expectations that the test will induce nausea and dizziness, are we setting our patients up for greater discomfort versus if we instructed them differently? Wow, and, that's um, a great question. Um, yeah, it's it's really cool to have psychology in on this. Um, and God, psychology papers are really tough to read. So this, <laughs> this is a really, a really fun project. And we've only done the first experiment in a series of experiments. Um, but many, many undergrads have worked on this project. Um, and I think they, like I said, they found the, very, the concept very interesting. They got to work with equipment. They got to run a bunch of caloric tests. Um, and the, the early findings are actually pretty cool. What, we, what we've seen is that there is an increased physiologic response in the group that we told would be dizzy. Wow. Oh, I, I should mention that in this first experiment, we, we used a water caloric, but we used body temperature water. Um, and so if you don't know anything about the caloric test, just know that the temperature of the stimulus, in this case, water, has to be warmer or cooler than your body temperature for it to have any effect on your vestibular system. So by using body temperature, we're basically just putting water in your ear, like body temperature water, like, you know, no different than, if, I don't know, you're in a bathtub or something. Um, but we told, you know, a certain group that they would feel, you know, dizzy, they'd feel one way and the other group were like, hey, this is cool. Now, subjectively, none of them felt dizzy, which makes sense. We weren't actually inducing any sort of vestibular response, but we used um, a galvanic, galvanic skin response system, a GSR system I borrowed from Psych, and that was the, the physiologic response. And in the group that was expecting to feel nauseated and dizzy and vertiginous, they had this huge spike in their physiologic response, expecting that to happen. Um, so even with no vestibular stimulation, telling someone or telling a group that they're going to, that's going to cause a response, it looks like it will. And this was just the first in a, in a series of experiments. Um, and I hope we can continue it, you know, once, once it's safe to do so in the lab, but that's definitely a project that undergrads jump on. They like the psychology part. Um, I like the psychology part. Again, I don't know where it's going to fit into things, but it's a great student run project. Absolutely. That is like extremely fascinating. Um, and I, I feel like it's one of those things where it makes sense to me. It's like, you know, you're kind of like just from personal clinical experience, you, you know, you try not to scare your patient before, but you also want to be realistic. And I think this will be great data to either, you know, kind of guide in, you know, what is the best instructional technique for this kind of thing. And I'm assuming, I mean, I think this will be great if you guys can look if you start running a real caloric and see if it affects the caloric response, if it's any bigger or lower, I mean, that's, that's a really, really fascinating uh, research study. Yeah. Yeah. We had set up um, a series of, of experiments we would need to do. And um, you know, Abby Weiss was the AUD student who did the first one for her AUD. And, you know, we just wrapped that up in March. She defended in March and, you know, then a pandemic happened and we shut the lab down. So we haven't been able to do the, the follow-up studies, but I think it'll be really cool on once we do. And, you know, if the caloric technique itself isn't 
too difficult to learn. Um, and so it's, it's a quick one for undergrads to get into. The, the technique in this particular one is there's the deception piece, which is all IRB approved. Um, sure. and, and there's pre-recorded instructions and there's all these steps they have to take for so that the two groups are, are pretty equivalent. Um, but I like small studies like that because they don't they don't cost much. I mean, this study doesn't cost anything. I'm borrowing the equipment. Um, it's low risk. If it doesn't work, it's okay. Um, and again, it could be led by students. They get to do their own project. Um, Abby's presented it. The students get really into it because some of the study, you know, it's theirs. They get to take a piece of it with them. And so I really like those little side studies that I get to do. Yeah. Um, but most of my time in labs resources really goes towards a series of projects that, that serve a larger research agenda. Um, and I kind of have three main areas. And of course, students are going to work on all of these. Um, many times they'll take a piece of the project for um, like an honors thesis or graduation requirement. Um, they get to be co-authors on publications. And in some cases, they get to be first authors on, on manuscripts. But, you know, those areas sort of surround um, or those three areas are um, one is physiology. And that's something I've always worked on is, is the physiology of the vestibular system. But um, more recent work I'm doing is with um, Chris Kleinard. So Dr. Kleinard, one of your other former professors, but we're using, so he's auditory. He's an auditory guy using evoke potentials and you know, I'm the vestibular person and we're using um, a stimulus that's similar to what you'd have for an ASSR. So it's an amplitude okay. modulated stimulus and we're evoking the, a vestibular myogenic potential with that, which gives us the chance to really analyze the waveform in a little bit more depth than just a traditional vent, which we have a, um, an onset response evoked by a transient, like a click or tone burst. So sure. We've got some grant money. We've got a lot of students working on that. And, you know, early data looks like it's going to give us some insights into the otolith system, um, the effects of age on the system. And it, it may be a kind of a new cool way to assess uh, reflexes in a little bit more depth. Um, and the second area that I'm working on is perceptual studies. Um, we've written a few recent papers looking at perception of motion during some of our testing um, particularly in cases when I know the peripheral vestibular system is working and it's generating a reflex, um, but does the participant have a, a sensation of motion, a corresponding sensation of motion? And uh, spoiler alert, um, older patients tend to not. They tend to have a very blunted perception of motion. Interesting. Um, yeah, they could have the exact same reflex as a younger participant, but their perception of, of movement it tends to be way lower, if at all. Some don't feel like they're moving at all. Um, and that same group also has greater postural instability. So there could be some um, some functional effects of this. Sure. Um, and I don't know if it's central processing. I don't know if it's something with age. I'm not sure yet. Yeah, I was going to ask, all right, you're, you know the physiology. Tell me what's going on here. But I guess that's part of the question, huh? It, it is. And it, it's led to a few more um, systematic investigations using um, more psychophysic techniques. So a little bit more um, precise. For example, here's a physical stimulus, like a rotation um, at a certain peak velocity or what have you. And then we would ask, hey, what's your perception of speed? or your distance of rotation. And then we link that back to traditional reflex testing. Um, students love to work on this because they get to mess with the rotary chair. Mm -hmm. um, we're doing some stuff with virtual reality in this series of projects. And so they get to mess with the Oculus. Um, so lot, lots of fun techie stuff that the students get to work on. But 
spoiler alert here, it, it looks like perception of movement and your physiologic reflexes don't correlate. Um, Interesting. Which is, you know, consistent with actually some older work in this area. Um, it, it is interesting because clinically we test reflexes, right? And we're going we're gonna to make an assumption that those reflexes, um, you know, tell me about your vestibular function. And yeah. then we try to deduce whether your symptoms are going to be explained by that reflex or that abnormal reflex. But what we're seeing is that someone's perception, which is pretty much what they report to us in a case history. Um, I've never had anyone say my vestibular reflex is off when I turn my head to the right. <laughs> but they, they will say I'm dizzy when I turn my head to the right. Um, but we measure the reflex. We um, don't measure the perception. And I think that's going to be a future area of growth and research and diagnostics. And the, the AUD student and PhD students working on this are the ones who are like, okay, let's take this to the next level. Let's jump this. So that's a, an ongoing set of studies. Um, and then and the third one, and I just want to touch on this one real quick because there was a lot of undergrads on this one. And, and it's another one that I was like, let's just do it, guys. Let's jump in. We're looking at functional balance. So, you know, the, the effects of vestibular loss on your overall balance and your stability and okay. ultimately, you know, someone's risk of falls. Um, and the, the impetus for this work comes from clinical practice. and um, some other, some past studies I had done where um, I had used, um, and NIH has like a, a functional balance protocol. There's this test called the Romberg, and there's a bunch of different parts to it. But in the fourth part, which is the hardest part, they're on a piece of um, squishy foam that's kind of like um, a couch cushion. It's kind of squishy, and your eyes are closed. So we take your vision away and your, your, your proprioception under your feet squishy and it's a little bit off, and then you have to hold your balance for 30 seconds. And um, it's more or less pass fail. And I had run um, a group of participants who were mostly over 80 um, and a huge number of them passed. And I'm, I'm putting pass in air quotes, but you can't see me, but I'm air quoting pass <laughs> because they, they swayed and they moved, but technically they didn't fall off and they didn't swing their arms. So they technically passed, um, but they were subjectively very different from the younger control group who were like steady as a rock. Um, and so I thought, oh, I need a better way to test balance. Um, I also had younger patients who were hitting a ceiling effect. So basically sure. the, the test is too easy for them. Even if they have vestibular loss, standing on foam, they're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, so we've got a whole bunch of undergrads and, and an AUD student, um, Valerie Beecham, working on, on using the Romberg test, but in a, a dual task paradigm. And we're assessing sway using an accelerometer and the Wii board. So I have to break this down just a little bit. The setup is, is really, really creative. And I, I attribute that to Valerie, who, who just jumped all in on this. And the undergrads who work on this, um, they've really, really gotten into it. And it's really, really cool. But we're using the sensors in a Wii board. Um, which I think like you would use for like a Wii Fit, like the yeah, like old like exercise the, program? The old, yes, the old Wii boards that we, we look for in thrift stores. <laughs> By the way, if anyone has an old Wii board at their parents' house or something and they're willing to donate, we collect the old Wii boards. I, I look for them at thrift stores. I got one at my in-laws' house. Uh, that old big white Wii board. Um, it's got sensors in it, and we can use those to give us an objective, quantifiable measure of both anterior, posterior, so back and forth sway, and medial lateral sway, so the right and left. Um, so we were using that and then so we get a better in the accelerometer, which has been sort of a hassle, but we've got a more way to quantify how much someone's moving. 
Um, and the other key part to this is that dual task component. So instead of just having someone stand on foam, um, in this case, foam on a WeBoard, and say, okay, stand still, maintain your balance, we have them do that while they do a second task simultaneously. And in this case, they're wearing um, really cheap cardboard Google glasses, and we slit the little iPod in them, and they do a visual Stroop test. Okay. I'm not familiar with the Stroop test. Yeah, this is like Psych 101, like flashback. But the, the Stroop is like a classical informational processing test. And there's lots of different variations of the Stroop. But the one we're doing is you'll see um, the name of a color. So the you know, letters, it'll say blue, right? B-L-U-E. But it'll be written in like pink. Okay. And you need to say the color of the word, not read the letters of the word. Got it. And it flashes up on your Google Glasses and you have to do this quickly and you have to do this correctly while you're doing a balance task at the same time. Um, and so it sounds a lot harder. <laughs> it is a lot harder. And I, I, I kind of presented it to the students like conceptually how I thought of it was um, particularly the AUD students um, it was how we would test speech um, in quiet versus speech and noise in the clinic. Right. Most people do exceptionally well when testing speech and quiet, but they also rarely complain about that as an issue. And sure. It's pretty rare in the real world that we you know, have the luxury of listening to speech in a sound treated room with no distractions. Mm-hmm. Right. Speech and noise is, is more difficult. Um, and the same thing for balance. We rarely does someone with a balance issue say their problem comes by when they're they're standing very still thinking of nothing else but standing still. <laughs> right. But that's what we're going to test them with. Sure. Um, right. Their issues come with everyday movements and walking and talking simultaneously. There's actually an old paper that said, I forget the exact title, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something literally like old people can't walk and talk at the same time. Um, <laughs> and in the whole the whole concept was this dual task, doing two things at the same time. Absolutely. Right. The, the idea being that there's limited cognitive and attentional resources. And if you have any vestibular changes or vestibular loss, the more resources are needed to maintain your balance. So doing a thinking task like a stroop is more difficult. That's, um, that's excellent. I think that really reflects a, a more recent shift in, you know, audiologic evaluations in general, like you said, where we're focusing more, a bit more on that cognitive load and, you know, making more practical, more generalized kind of evaluations that are realistic. They're, you know, they're much more applicable to what that person actually faces in their day to day. Yeah. And I, and I love that set of projects. I love the functional one and the perceptual one because it goes so nicely with the reflexes and it gives us a better look at the overall person and not just what's going on in the you know depths of my inner ear, but what's happening to the person. And that's that's the AED side. I mean, that's that clinical side that still wants to answer those major questions. No, that's perfect how those come together like that. That's really great. Do you have any like... I know that one's probably pretty early in its process. Do you have anything that you can share about what you're seeing so far? With uh, the WeBoard project? Mm-hmm. It, we, we just got the massive data set right when the, everything shut down. So we, we've got a few things. We had a few um, preliminary questions we asked, like, you know, did it matter if we instructed them to focus on the balance versus focus on the Stroop test? Like we had kind of gone through a series of small projects first. So okay. we're, we're tackling those. And we're also trying to see, one, is it feasible, which, by the way, it was, um, but what it looks like in a young normal group um, before we start. We have not tested um, older patients or tested um, patients with diabetes, which is sort of my my ultimate goal at this point is to get that group in and see how they do on these. 
Sure. That's, that's a great transition. Can you talk a little bit? I know, I think I saw a study that was published with you um, and uh, Gary Jacobson looking at diabetes and vestibular stuff. Is that right? Uh, yeah, well, yeah. And uh, Daniel Romero is the, the doc student on that as well. Um, so this, this is sort of where all these different projects are leading to. So all the different little projects that undergrads are doing are ultimately leaning into sort of what I really want the lab to go to. And, um, you know, working with, with patients with diabetes is something I really accidentally got into. Um, just a, a few years ago, Kathy Dowd, who's from the audiology project in North Carolina, and she had contacted me. They were looking for vestibular experts for this working group on diabetes. And I was like, no, no, I don't have time. And then she came back and she's like, we really need vestibular people. And I was like, okay. And then I was like, well, I'll do some small things. And then she's like, no, no, do this. And I was like, okay. And then you know, back, back and forth. And anyway, several years have gone by. And now we've published three papers looking at mostly reviewing what, what do we know about um, the effects of diabetes on the vestibular system? What do we not know? And what, what do we need to know? And um, I mean, it's diabetes. It's, it's huge. It's prevalent. It's everywhere. And, sure. Um, we, we know that vestibular function is way higher. There's like a twofold higher odds of falling, um, compared to people with diabetes and normal vestibular function. Um, there's a higher prevalence of vestibular dysfunction in patients with, um, longer uh, duration of diabetes with greater A1C levels. Um, and then there's a lot of clear links between hyperglycemia and the inner ear, um, a lot of that comes from auditory studies and animal studies, but um, the limited vestibular work that's there shows, you know, similar effects. So we know it has um, an effect on the inner ear. And there's, you know, some work showing some some of the clinical implications of that, but it's really sparse. There's not a lot there. And in working with this working group that I was reluctant to do, I just saw all these gaps in what we didn't know. And it was a patient population that I had largely ignored. I hadn't thought too much of. Um, and that, that's a shame because it's definitely a, a patient group that we should put a lot more effort into looking into, um, particularly yeah. when it comes to, to risk of falls. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that really is a great, like it really crosses the boundaries of CSD between speech and audiology. Um, I know a lot of the speech students I work with are hoping to one day be in like a skilled nursing facility setting. And, you know, I know that I don't have any specific figures, but I know that falls are becoming, you know, sort of a pandemic on their own in our country in terms of the cost of healthcare when it comes to falls and, you know, the mortality rate of falls and just there's just so much more research coming out. And I think, you know, really examining that vestibular component, it sometimes it it must go, you know, overlooked overlooked sometimes when it comes to our understanding of falls in general. Oh, yeah. Of, of all the sensory systems, I'd argue the vestibular is probably the least studied. Um, and even with falls in patients with diabetes, we know a lot about visual system and, you know, proprioception and, and, you know, neuropathies and things, but the vestibular system rarely gets discussed, yet it plays this massive role in our balance. Um, you know, and I think it's just one of those complex systems that's hard to test and not a whole lot of places have the capacity to test it um, or even understanding of how to test it. And that, that's kind of where we come in. That's where our lab comes in, because I, I want to look at it from every different angle I can, not just, again, not just the reflexes, but what, what's their perception of motion? What's their functional balance? You know, let's put them on the Wii board and see what we get. No, that's, that's great. I, I like how, you know, you have the you have every kind of facet of how vestibular evaluations work together in, in your lab. You've got, 
the psych the psychology study where they have this you know more perceptual you know differences you've got your physiological differences you've got you know how they demonstrate with evoke potentials it all really comes together and that's really cool how it's starting to you know point in this direction i guess you know they're all building upon each other to really start to ask some of these bigger questions about diabetes and the you know the the its impact on the vestibular system yeah, yeah. And, and when someone's in a, in a, a PhD program, ultimately, you're, you're kind of taught to have your programmatic line of research. Like this is the area you do. And I found that it was hard to focus on one area and incorporate students in what I'm doing because I, I'd be limited in the number I could take. They'd have to work on the one project I told them to work on. And what I love how the way the lab is set up is I still get to have the, the line of research that I'm focused on, but I get to do all these little extra projects that are, are wide open students to, to, to get a wonderful, or I hope was a wonderful experience, um, you know, getting, getting to do some, some research in an area that they may not have ever been exposed to. Yeah, that's great. I love how that all comes together. That's, that kind of, kind of perfectly wraps it up too, with, you know, just the involvement of undergrads and how that leads to this, their, their learning process leads to this, you know, expansion of our understanding of so many other topics. And I, I know that's true for undergraduate research across all, you know, aspects of science. So that's really great. I really appreciate you talking about that today and joining me. Um, do you, if people wanted to ask you more questions, whether it's about undergraduate research, if they want to donate a Wii board, um, where, where can people reach you? Yes. Yeah, so we donations can come to, uh, yeah, my, my email is, um, Piker EG. So P I K E R E G at jmu.edu. Um, and I suppose if if you Googled me, my email would come up. I'm pretty sure it's it's public on Jamie's website. So yeah, <laughs> I, I would um, I could discuss you know vestibular stuff all day, every day. Discuss research. Um, yeah, feel free to email me. Perfect. We'll get ready for those those emails then, because I'm sure people have some some dusty old Wii boards that they're ready to send your way. Yeah, bring them on. Perfect. All right, give me just a minute. We're going to switch over to questions. And that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening, subscribing, and rating. This podcast is part of an audio course offered for continuing education through Speech Therapy PD. Check out the website if you'd like to learn more about the CEU opportunities available for this episode, as well as archived episodes. Just head to speechtherapypd.com slash ear. That's speechtherapypd.com slash E-A-R.